episode 44 of the DNC podcast, Friday edition. Dustin, are you excited it's Friday or what? I'm excited, man. We get the uh, conclusion of the NBA Finals tonight. Lakers in five, LeBron gets ring number four. The conclusion. The conclusion. Who do you, who do you think wins tonight? Yeah, I think I think the Lakers close it out. You you predicted it, man. You said you said Lakers in five, and when I what's interesting, you and I were talking about this, and I think it's I think it's very disrespectful, honestly, to LeBron because you and I both agree that LeBron is, is the goat, and everybody for so long. I even I even was watching first take, which I never do, and Stephen A. basically said it doesn't matter what LeBron does for the remainder of his career. I'll never put him ahead of Jordan. Jordan will always be my goat. And I think you made a really great point, which was it seems like that generation that that sees Jordan that way, they it's like an emotional attachment to Jordan. It's not it's not let's look at the stats or let's look at the the eye test. And again, when I say this, please take it with a grain of salt people because I'm not saying that there's a huge gap per se, but what I am saying is that it's very obvious in mine and Dustin's opinion that LeBron is the GOAT. And so my attachment to LeBron is not emotional because I could go into great detail and so could Dustin about how we actually feel about LeBron. But from a basketball standpoint, you know, we, we just we just think it's obvious. And so, you know, I, th- I think the generation that that does love Jordan, it's like an emotional attachment that they just it's like they won't let go of it. Yeah, I think for so many people, I mean, Jordan to an extent saved basketball, right? You look at that era where you had Magic and you had Larry Bird, and to a lot of people, they didn't know what was going to happen next, right? And you have this guy like MJ emerge, and in his rookie year, people were saying he was arguably the best player in the league, right? And so you grew up seeing that. From an athletic standpoint, he completely dominated the league, and then you look at a guy like LeBron James, and even his rookie year, he's playing in a league filled with guys like Tracy McGrady, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, these other great dominant athletes. And so early on, he was just a guy. And then as he grew through the ranks, now he's competing with a guy like Kobe Bryant, who a lot of people had this huge emotional connection with as well, kind of like that MJ level. And I think the biggest thing and the biggest reason people on an emotional standpoint relate to or idolize a Kobe Bryant or a Michael Jordan is their willpower, their winner-take-all mentality, the fact that they're these ultimate alpha dogs and they're always going for your throat. Where when you look at a guy like LeBron, he's a much more cerebral player, right? So he plays from a basketball IQ standpoint. He's the guy who, last minute in the game, will drive, bring in three defenders and pass open to the wide-open three. And so it's not the sexy play. It's not the most dominant quote-unquote play, but it's the right basketball play. Yeah, so what Stephen A. was saying, or I I believe it was uh, Perkins, had talked about how LeBron, if he wins this fourth ring, is now at the table with MJ. But I'm like, a few months ago with three rings, because of his finals record at three and seven, people were saying he can't even be in the discussion because of how many finals he's lost. And now all of a sudden, here we are months later, and because he's adding like what to me, it's like what's the difference with one ring for from you going making an argument saying he's not even at the table, and now he's at the table one ring later. So I don't know. Again, we're not going to get into a super long debate about that, but uh, yeah, I think I think the Lakers close it out tonight, especially in the Mamba jerseys. You know, they're they're undefeated in those, so they're not gonna they're not gonna lose. LeBron will not allow them to lose in those uniforms in a in a clincher. So so Dwayne Haskins, you think he celebrates with his team? Um, hopefully I'm hoping, you know, I just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was tough to watch that, you know, it's tough to watch him sit down. I I don't, the thing with LeBron, he's very theatrical. So I feel like he does certain things because he wants the attention. He wants like later on when the, when the LeBron documentary comes out, he wants there to be some sort of a talking point that is just very theatrical. And that's, and that's the thing, you know, look, if that's what you want to do and you want that to be your legacy, then obviously he does because that's what he's choosing to do. I think it's poor leadership. A lot of people are trying to make an argument that when he walked off the court that, oh, this has nothing to do with leadership. I'm like, it has everything to do with leadership. So um, so Washington football team's leadership, Ron Rivera, the head coach, decided to bench Dwayne Haskins. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you were right. I think the over-under you picked on that was five games. I'm honestly somewhat surprised just because he was a first round pick and normally a first round pick gets like two to three years 
In my opinion, the only reason they're making this move is I have to think Ron Rivera thinks we have a legit chance of winning this division. When you look at the current standings, the Giants are 0-4, Cowboys 1-3, Eagles 1-2-1. The Redskins It hurts me to hear you say this. The Redskins are 1-3. From a defensive standpoint, they have a really underrated front seven. And so... I don't think they have a chance to win the division, but I think he's looking at how the Eagles are playing. They're underperforming to an extremely high level. Your Cowboys have given up 146 points in four games, right? And so everybody's going on them. It's like, Oprah, you get a touchdown, you get a touchdown, you get a first down. <laughs> and then the uh, Cowboys... That, that, know, there's, pain, the, there's pain in that laugh. <laughs> and the, the Giants have scored, what, three touchdowns through four weeks of the season? And so I think he looks at it and he's like, I'm a defensive-minded head coach. Um, I just need a quarterback to kind of keep us in the game. I mean, Ron Rivera, you know, he didn't hold back. He talked about them going for it on fourth down last week and saying, you know, I gave Haskins a chance to show me, you know, his level of quarterback play. And the fact that on a fourth down play, you're throwing it seven yards outside of the end zone. You just can't do that. Like you got to give your team a chance. And so I think Ron Rivera, I respect the fact that he knows this isn't going to be a popular move. You know, it's his first year in Washington, a lot of people, to my somewhat dismay, are really, really high on Haskins. Maybe it's this glimmer of hope because I haven't had a franchise quarterback for so long. But I love the fact that Riverboat Ron saying, you know, we got to move on. And um, it looks like Alex Smith, hopefully in the next say, two to four weeks, once he's fully recovered, may get a shot at the starting quarterback position. Yeah, you said something interesting to me as well off air. You said something uh, in regards to Ron Rivera did not draft Dwayne Haskins. And I think a lot of people forget in the NFL when there is a coaching change, if if they weren't a part of, let's say, the front office or the coaching staff that drafted that quarterback, they don't have any emotional tie, right? Because when you draft a quarterback, especially in the first round, you essentially have to stick with them to your point, right? Two to three years if it's a first round pick, because you can't be wrong, right? You have to you have to somehow make it work and justify it's a great you have point. to justify you making that decision on that quarterback. Ron Rivera did not draft Dwayne Haskins. So to him, like you said, and he even said this in that presser is that he's like, I, I want to win. I'm here to win. So whoever gives us the best opportunity and the best chance to win, that guy's gonna be under center. And so when you when you bring over a guy like Kyle Allen, who let me just say for a quick off point that I don't think Kyle Allen is a massive upgrade from Dwayne Haskins, but he's a guy that was in Carolina with Ron Rivera, who understands the offense, understands the system a little bit better. But I and I even actually want to give credit to Marcus Spears. He said, and I thought this was a really good point. He said that Kyle Allen knows the system much better, and so he feels more comfortable with him. And then he goes, Well, then why start Dwayne Haskins? Like, why? Why play him for four weeks if you felt more comfortable with Kyle Allen? Why not just sit Haskins? And then if Kyle Allen doesn't perform, then you bring in Dwayne Haskins to see if he is the guy. Or if you feel like Alex Smith's healthy enough, you give him the nod. So again, I, I don't really understand it from that standpoint. I thought that was a really, really good point. And, you know, look, I, I, I was never high on him coming out of college when you're, you know, it's the same thing with Tua. Like we're seeing what Mac Jones is doing at Alabama. It's you and I. You and I couldn't be lower on Tua. It's not that we think he's absolutely horrific, but he's a lefty. He's not mobile. I think he has good pocket awareness. He is accurate, but he played with a lot of talent at Alabama. So sometimes that can lead people astray because they're thinking, wow, look at the numbers. This is at Alabama, you know, typically a, a, a run first offense throughout the years. And, you know, he's breaking all these Alabama passing records. And here we see, in, you know, a weird offseason. Mac Jones is tearing it up right now. At Alabama. And so, you know, look, do I think Haskins' career is over? Yes. <laughs> now, I think he could be a backup in the NFL. I don't think he'll be a starter. But again, one of the points I made was people were like, oh, it's so, it's so wrong to treat him this way. Like he's only had 11 starts through essentially his year and a half in the NFL. They're not giving him a true shot to be a franchise quarterback. And I go, look, yeah, you're right. And the situation's not the best. He doesn't have the best supporting cast. However, he decided to leave after 12 starts. Nobody else decided that but him. So it really frustrates me in life when people make a decision and then it doesn't work out in their favor. So then they blame everybody else. And so 
in Dwayne Haskins situation, look, you decided to leave. You rolled the dice on yourself saying, basically, I'm ready for the NFL right now. And I'm going to go to the NFL and I'm going to, I'm going to basically play my hand and you know what? It didn't work. So you have to take some responsibility for that. This is not just the offensive line. This is not just the Washington football team organization. This is also on you, right? When I look at your stats, you're 18th in the league with 939 yards. You have four TDs, which is 23rd in the league, three interceptions, which is, which is good, right? You're, you're 17th, but here's the thing. You have a 30.6 QBR which is last. And I understand the offensive line. They've allowed the third most pressures in the NFL. But again, you can't blame everybody but yourself. So last week on the DC Inbox, we had a question about Bill O'Brien, right? Is he the right guy for Houston? We both believed long-term Bill O'Brien probably wasn't the best fit. Number one at the GM standpoint, but even looking at the head coach coaching position, we kind of felt going forward, he'd probably get let go after the season and be more of a offensive coordinator. I was shocked that week four he was fired. I know they're 0-4, but you look at this Houston's team. I picked the Colts to win the division, but a lot of people were really high in Houston. You have Deshaun Watson, who's your franchise quarterback. Last year, they started 0-3, rattled off, I think, nine straight wins, and then made the playoffs. And so... I thought there was no way O'Brien got fired four weeks into the season when you look at that roster and the expectations. Number one, are you shocked about this move? And do you think this is the right direction for the Houston franchise at this point in the season? I'm not shocked because you kind of saw the writing on the wall. I said this last week. If if you're going to be the actual GM or some sort of an acting GM and you make certain moves. So like, let's go back to Philadelphia when Chip Kelly got hired. And he was basically, he wasn't the GM, but he was given authority over player personnel. And he started getting rid of guys, right? LaShawn McCoy, LaShawn Jackson. And a lot of people were scratching their head, like, what are you doing? And so when you do that, if it works out, you look like a genius. But if it doesn't work out, you're gone. You will get canned. And I think we're in an era now in the NFL. You're seeing it with quarterbacks. We just talked about Dwayne Haskins. And then you're also seeing it with coaches. If you don't, if you don't win within a few years, unless you're Jason Garrett and you're with the Dallas Cowboys, you essentially get two to three years. And if you don't win, you're gone. So I actually was thinking about people were talking about the, the New York Jets and who's going to be the next head coach of the New York Jets. And they're talking about like Dabo Sweeney, right? Because if they get the number one pick, you get Trevor Lawrence. So, you know, you're coaching your coach. I don't I don't think he leaves Clemson, man. There, there's no way you leave that program right now. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like you have the comfort, the comfort zone of being at Clemson. You've built the brand up. He's done a great job of doing that. And you essentially are now going to be able to recruit five stars like it's nothing. And it, it's just it's safe, right? Whereas if you go to the NFL and it doesn't work out like Nick Saban did. You know, you get fired within two years to three years. And then so it's like now you got to go back to college and rebuild another program. So I'm not shocked by it. I think, you know, I, I kind of wanted to go through this quote. Your your beloved Tom Brady said on a, on a conversation on Westwood One Radio with Jim Gray, who – so O'Brien spent 2007 and 2011 with your beloved New England Patriots. And he said this, quote, that was really tough to see. I've seen Bill. I've seen Billy a lot. I've known Billy a long time. I think he's a hell of a head coach. I think he does a great job. He has a leader. He has great leadership ability, and it's a very difficult part of the profession. I thought he's done a great job in Houston over the years. Those guys really seem to love playing for him. It is always tough when you see that happen, especially four games into the year. Four weeks ago, everyone was so hopeful about what the season could become. You hate to see things transpire as they do. To lose a coach four games into the season doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Now. I, I understand where Tommy's coming from, but when you're 0-4, you've decided to get rid of DeAndre Hopkins for a trash can and bring in guys like Randall Cobb and David Johnson, and you get Brandon Cooks, and it doesn't work out. They don't really have any other direction to go in. And, and here's, here's what's interesting. Bill O'Brien actually benefited from this because I think he'll get another job. I don't know if he'll necessarily get a head coaching job next, but he'll probably get a coordinator job, or maybe he goes back to college and he coaches. But check this out. The Texans have the NFL's highest payroll this year at $248 million. They're projected to be $6 million over the salary cap this offseason. Over the past 12 months, 
They've traded away Jadavian Clowney and DeAndre Hopkins, two bona fide all pros, for essentially nothing. They don't have a first or second round pick in the next draft because they traded for Laramie Tunzel, the tackle from the Dolphins. And they only have four picks in the 2021 upcoming draft. Talk about shooting your shot and missing. Massive, right? So, and then through four weeks this season, their group ranks 32nd in adjusted sack rate, 29th in adjusted line rate, which measures how far they knock the defense off the line of scrimmage in the run game. And then 31st in pressure rate, right? So he leaves them in a horrible situation, an absolute dismal situation. And he just gets to walk away from it. Yeah, I think some of those stats really paint a picture um, based upon like how he played in New England. Because in New England, 2007 was when we had Randy Moss, right? And when you look at that year with the Patriots, it was a one year where someone did a really good job. I think it was Troy Aikman explaining the difference between what Brady's doing in Tampa this year versus New England. So when Brady played in New England, the reads were always low to high, right? So say you have a receiver running a slant and then a 12-yard out and then like a skinny post. In New England, you'd read slant. 12-yard out, skinny post. We're now in Tampa, he's reading skinny post, 12-yard out, slant, right? So it it adjusts your time in the pocket. So obviously, if your reads are going from deep to short, you're holding the ball a lot longer. That was how Brady played in 2007 when we had Randy Moss, Wells Walker, and they took a lot more vertical threats. It's one thing Houston's done consistently, and it worked to an extent with Hopkins, but also it led to Watson getting a lot of sacks. And so when you look at these offensive numbers, Watson's been historically hit. So even when you trade for a guy like Laramie Tunzel, who's, I'd say, an above average left tackle. I don't think he's dominant. I don't consider him an all pro. I think he's a good left tackle. When your quarterback's holding the ball so long because you're always going deep first, you're going to take a lot more hits. And so the way he put this roster together based upon the way he wanted to play from an X's and O standpoint never really matched on paper. And the and the hard part for Houston is whichever head coach takes over this position, he's in a really tough spot because now you have Brown and Brandon Cooks. You're going to have to probably play Will Fuller because he's your only other vertical threat on the roster. You have David Johnson, so you're going to have to revamp the running back position, and then you look at that defense with J.J. Watt and the unit across the board, they're a lot older. And so this is a team that's going to be in rebuilding mode to an extent, but you have your franchise quarterback, and so it's a difficult situation. Then you look at Bill O'Brien, he's probably going to get a head coaching job, right? Because you're going to have a lot of openings like the Jacksonville Jaguars. You're going to have the Jets. These are teams that are going to be looking for an offensive-minded head coach because they're probably going to be drafting a quarterback. And so he gets out of one situation in Houston, and he's probably going to get another franchise quarterback next year. Talking about a franchise quarterback, Tampa Bay and Chicago squared off last night. I was really excited because I really wanted to see, is this the first chance for Tom Brady to finally beat Nick Foles? Um, It kills me that Nick Foles is the one guy that seems to have the edge on Brady. Um, To Derek Carr's standpoint, can we call it a rivalry when it seems like Nick Foles is getting the better of him every time? Uh, But all seriousness aside, what did you think of Chicago last night? Tampa takes an early lead. They're up, I think, 13-7. to Jimmy Graham has a crazy grab right before halftime. The Bears are 4-1. and Are they a legit playoff team? Are they a contender? Obviously, they play in a, t- a tough division, but what do you make of the Bears after last night's, I think, surprising victory over the Bucks? Yeah, I think that Tampa Tampa came out and I thought they, you know, they got off to a, a pretty good start. They went up 13 to nothing. And then Chicago did a great job of coming back. And yes, I think Chicago's a playoff team. No, I do not think they're a contender. They don't they just don't have enough offensively to compete, um, especially when you're talking about the NFC. But I think everybody's going to jump off the bandwagon of Tampa Bay, which is just typical. Everybody overreacts. They're going to talk about how Tom Brady's washed. It's going to be the same narratives that they've been talking about for seven years of his career, or at least the last seven years. And so, you know, obviously you, you remember the whole, the whole Tom Brady forgetting it was fourth down last night. And look, I, I mean, it is what it is, right? Do you think he really forgot? That's bad, dude. You can't be doing that that long into your career. That that killed me. I think my biggest takeaway on that drive was he looked like he didn't have his guy that he's comfortable with, like his safety blanket, because to take that shot, I think Cameron Braid at that point, 
He needed his Welsh Walker, Julian Edelman, that slot guy across the middle. Obviously, Chris Godwin's out, but my biggest takeaway from last night was Brady took some big shots, but it looked like he doesn't have a security blanket yet, which makes sense because you're only week five into the season. Yeah, I think you, you've seen him. You've seen him spread the ball around. You know, with Chris Godwin being out, which it, I think he was building some sort of a chemistry with him, but he was, you know, he's been out, and so you've seen him spread the ball around, which shows he's kind of feeling everybody out. He's to the LeBron effect, right? He's trying to see who he can trust, and you know, obviously Gronk had a pretty decent game last night, but Gronk is pretty pretty one to you know, one dimensional at this point in his career. And, uh, you know, as far as forgetting that, I mean, look, I, I, I haven't seen Tom Brady have a lapse like that in quite some time, but again, that's, that's not the, that's not the difference in the game yesterday. And to your point on that exact play, I mean, it, it wasn't even close to being open. So it's like why he made that throw. I don't understand. There was actually, um, a check down right underneath to, um, I can't remember. I don't know if Fournette was in the game or if it was Rojo Ronald Jones, who was, was there that he could have dumped it off to that could have potentially gotten the first down. So didn't understand the decision and then forgetting it was fourth down is pretty bad. But the Bucks defense, which is a top five defense in the league right now, didn't play that well. And Foles, Foles didn't play great, but he put together a pretty good last drive, which now gives him 12 game winning drives in the fourth quarter or overtime. And he made, he made some plays when he needed to. And at the end of the day in the NFL, that's what it comes down to. Like who's going to make the plays late? Like I said, I did. I wasn't wowed by his performance. I didn't feel like he played exceptionally well. Now the interception, I did not feel like was his fault. But the the Bucks had a chance at the end where Jamel Dean dropped an interception that would have pre- pretty much sealed the game for Tampa. And so you got to. I mean, the ball hits you in the hands, right? And I understand you're a DB probably for that reason. You don't have great hands, but you have to make those plays. So even though looking at their record at three and two. I still think this team's a playoff team, and I still am going to stick with them for my Super Bowl pick. And they're going to get this thing right. It's been four weeks or five weeks. I'm not. I'm not going to overreact to this. No, I completely agree. I think when you look at this team, they've had some really high moments, and then they've had some kind of coming to earth moments. And when you look at no off season, Tom Brady with a completely new roster. The fact that they've been so dominant at times, I think it's actually been more surprising than really what I think most people were expecting. I think a lot of people were thinking, you know, Brady's in, what, year 21, 22 at this point. He's 43 years old. He has a whole new cast, whole new scheme. I don't think people realize how difficult it is completely changing the way you're reading defenses this far into your career. I'm not saying Brady can't do it, but it's just different. You're holding onto the ball way longer where he's a guy who historically is, you know, as soon as he finds the open guy, he kind of lets the ball loose, where now he's really padding, holding onto the football. It's just different. I think it takes a while to get into the flow. He's also had multiple guys out, right? You had Mike Evans miss time. Now you've had Chris Godwin miss time. You just lost OJ Howard, who he seemed to be making a better connection with last week. And so there's been a lot of adjustments to a completely new offense this far into the season. It also seems like Bruce Arians and him still aren't completely on the same page. And I think that relationship for me is the weirdest dynamic out of all of this because almost every coach in the NFL, except I think Belichick at this time because his ego is off the charts, would have loved to have Tom Brady. And his dynamics with Arians is the one part that scares me a little bit about this team because it just doesn't seem there. Yeah, it just feels off. Like even on television, it's like, it seems really forced. It's like, of course he loves Tom Brady because it's Tom Brady, but it's weird. I, I don't know how else to say it or quantify it, but it, 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 you're right. It just, it's a weird relationship and it could get fixed over the course of the season, but it has not been a match made in heaven like I thought it might be. So we'll have to see. Yeah. I think for me, that's the one thing that's just a little tricky just because you look at, he's historically been a guy who's um, had a great relationship with his quarterback. And a lot of people said they thought part of the reason he signed with Tampa over a team like Chicago, um, sorry, a team like the Los Angeles Chargers, who had a really good roster as well, was because of Bruce Arians and his relationship with quarterbacks. But I think we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. So super excited for our main topic on the podcast today. We're going to break down our NFL awards a quarter way through the season. But before that, um, I want to go with my pick of the day. So, Ronald Acuna, one of the best, I think, emerging stars in baseball this season, um, had a bat flip versus Miami. And then he basically said, I like to take the time to apologize to absolutely nobody. 
They hit me because they can't get me out. So he bat flip. Next at bat gets hit. I think his quote was alluding to um, Tatis Jr. getting plunked in the regular season when he had a grand slam, when he didn't take a, I think an 0-3 pitch when they were up by four or five runs. I love it, dude. Yeah, 3 I, pitch. I absolutely yeah. love it. In my opinion, baseball's needed its young stars to be more vocal, to be more fun, to be more exciting. We've seen guys like Mike Trout, um, Cody Bellinger, Aaron Judge. You know, they're great players, but they don't have this huge personality. And I think part of the reason you could make a case that young players aren't as into baseball as, say, football and basketball is when you're a kid, you play sports because you idolize certain players. Like, I wanted to play football because of Tom Brady and the emotional impact he had on me. I played basketball because of LeBron James and the aura of him, his slam dunk, and then he'd flex down the court and different things like that, especially when you start playing sports at eight, nine, ten years at all. And baseball, to a larger degree, has completely gone away from that emotional excitement and I think seeing the younger stars displaying it and not apologizing for it is what baseball needs if they're going to continue to try to grow that younger fan base what are your thoughts on that yeah I agree 100% Trevor Bauer came out and said he's the he's the ace for the Cincinnati Reds and he basically came out and said this is what we need in baseball we need this type of personality this injection of energy the swagger that's what baseball needs and for a league that I believe is very rigid, the purists want to hold on to this baseball's America's sport. It's America's game. It's America's pastime. They want to hold on to that and not allow the game to evolve into the game that it needs to become in this modern era. And so to your point, which I think you laid out beautifully with guys like Tatis Jr., guys like Ronald Acuna Jr., they have to do this stuff. People people want to see home runs. And when you hit a home run, you should be able to celebrate. I don't care what, like if I pitched, right? If a guy hit a home run off me and he bat flipped, yeah, you might take it personal. But guess what? On the next, the next at bat, when I see that guy, I don't need to hit him. I'm going to try to strike him out, right? That should be the competitive edge in you as a pitcher to not go, I'm going to hit him because he bat flipped on me and it's disrespectful. Like that's basically the equivalent of, a guy dunking on your, like dunking on you, posterizing you. And then the next transition down, he gets a fast break and you're there one-on-one with him again. And you just absolutely take his legs out from underneath him. And then he gets hurt. It's like, I just, you got dunked on. He was just better than you in that moment. And in this, if you throw a fastball, a breaking ball and Ronald Acuna hits it out of the ballpark or Tatis hits it out of the ballpark, whoever he was better than you in that moment. And that's okay. That's going to happen in life. Like you're not going to be perfect. So I think, I think you're hundred percent right. The, the baseball needs this and they need their stars, especially their young stars to be who they are and be the personalities that they want to be. Cause I think the other thing I'd love that you said, and it's true. Mike Trout's the greatest baseball player in my opinion, that's ever lived, but he, he's not a personality. He's not going to probably bat flip. He's not going to be super vocal. It's just, it's really just the type of, of guy that he is, but I'm going to stick in baseball as well. And I think a lot of people are going to be upset about this, but the Houston Astros, man, they're advancing to the ALCS. A lot of people are frustrated, of course, with the whole cheating scandal that happened in 2017. And let me just lay this out first. I, I'm not a fan of the Houston Astros. I actually wanted Oakland to win this series, but I, I'm coming from a different, a different vantage point. The fact that everybody thought they won the World Series because they cheated was absolutely ignorant. And I said this on our podcast. I said, look, I don't really have a problem with it. I'm not saying that I would condone it in the league. Like you can't cheat, right? But it's not why they won. It's just not. That series, if you remember in 2017 in the World Series against the Dodgers, it went seven games. It's not like they swept the Dodgers. So the Dodgers had a chance to win that series. And let's also just be honest, the Dodgers have the better roster. They, there's just no reason they shouldn't have won the World Series by now. So you even talked, you asked me this last week or two weeks ago. It's like, do you think the Dodgers are going to win? It's like, what more do you need? You got Mookie Betts. Like you got the second or third best player in baseball with Cody Bellinger. He's an MVP. The guy bats sixth. 
it shows the depth of their roster. I know you told me that I think when they're playing San Diego and I have a buddy who's a Dodgers fan, I'm like, it's an embarrassment of riches when you have Cody Bellinger batting right, six. Like, right. Even when he's having a, a somewhat down year, right, from an average standpoint, on any other team in the playoffs, he's batting third or fourth regardless of his batting average. Yeah, so you can be mad that they're advancing. You can be mad that they cheated. I even saw that Carlos Correa came out and basically was like, to the haters, you guys can hate on us for cheating, but like we're gonna we're gonna respond back by winning. And again, the older players, the purists, they're like, shut up, you cheated. It doesn't matter what you do. Like they're gonna hold on to this fact that they cheated. It's like I watched every game of this Oakland series, and Oakland is very good. They have no stars. They they're you know everybody knows the whole money ball, the Billy Bean. They're a small market. They don't have a big budget, and they always seem to be really really competitive. And the thing that I was, you know, that I was seeing is that offensively they can hang with anybody, but their pitching was really poor, right? It set an ALDS record for most home runs, both teams, right? The the A's and the Astros. And I just, you know, like I'm like, Houston is so deep. They're so talented and they don't even have, they lost Garrett Cole and Verlander has been out and they're still dominating. They're five and one in the playoffs this year. So look, I think they're going to make it to the world series. You can feel however you want to feel about that, but they're not cheating. At least we don't know, right? If they are, and and I don't think that they are. They're not going to hopefully follow up cheating with more cheating. So they're just better. They're better than everybody else. So just accept it. My favorite takeaway from the playoffs, at least with them playing Oakland, is them playing in LA. Like I had so many <laughs> yes. of my Dodgers fans yes. being like, "Bro, we're playing in Dallas, and and the Astros are playing in LA, and there's no fans are allowed to be there to boo them." I think it's kind of funny what what MLB has done this. No, for season. sure. I'm hoping that the Yankees can pull off Game Five because they're the ones they beat the the Yankees to go to the World Series that year, and and the Yankees, their whole organization, super mad that they cheated. They feel like they robbed them of the opportunity to go to the World Series. Okay. Well, here you go, New York, with your huge payroll. You're going to probably get another chance. Hopefully, you can beat Tampa Bay. You can beat Tampa Bay in game five. You're going to get a chance to play them. Now, it's going to come down to, are you better than them? There's no cheating. There's no excuse. Are you going to beat them? So, Dustin and I are going to get into the NFL season awards at the quarter mark. And I think it's been fun so far. I think there's been a lot of guys that have jumped off the screen, have surprised us, and then some guys that are just seasoned vets that were like, hey, this is what they do. So we're gonna kick it off. Dust, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go start with my MVP. I think there's some there's some dis- discussion and dispute on maybe who should be the MVP right now. And uh, but I think it's pretty obvious. It, it's gotta be Russell Wilson, right? He's starting the league in passing yards at 1285. He's got 16 TDs, which is first, which by the way, also tied an NFL record with Peyton Manning. He only has two interceptions, which is tied for eighth best an 82.5 QBR, which is fourth best in the league. And he's completing 75.2% of his passes right now. Seahawks are also 4-0. They don't have a good defense, right? They have the worst passing defense in the NFL, probably bottom five defense in the league come season end. And it's not like they have a lack of talent, right? You you, you acquired Jamal Adams. You still have Bobby Wagner. I, I still thought they should have found a way to keep clowning. But look, This is a guy that I've had to defend on this show several times because the disrespect on his name. And I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and, you know, everybody's on this Patrick Mahomes train and look, rightfully so he's earned that. However, the thing with Patrick Mahomes at this stage in his career is he still hasn't learned how to play the quarterback position. And we've gone into depth and great detail about going into the absolute perfect situation for him and that getting to be an Andy Reid system allowing the flaws of his game to not be glaring because of the weapons and Andy Reid putting him in position to maximize his ability. Now, when four or five years down the road, when he, when Patrick Mahomes really learns how to play the quarterback and you combine that with his natural talent, it's going to be an absolute problem. But right now, Russell Wilson is so gifted, especially being 5'10", but he also knows how to play the position. And when you have guys like DK Metcalf, who a lot of people are like, hey, he's having a breakout season. And look, Dustin and I both like him, but just like with quarterbacks, I'm not going to jump too far ahead and say this guy's a true number one receiver right now in a year and a half. And then you have Tyler Lockett at 5'9". It's like, he's a nice player because Russell Wilson makes him look like a nice player. Same with DK Metcalf. That's what great quarterbacks do. They make receivers look better than they are. And Tommy did that with Wes Welker. He's done it with Julian Edelman. Like those are guys I like, 
But if they go to any other team and they're on, you know, you look at a guy like Danny Amendola where he's like, he's in, he's in, uh, at the time, Detroit. Yeah. Well, he's in Detroit now, but, but like early on in his career when he was with the Rams, then the St. Louis Rams, it's like these, these guys they're you, it's like, okay, you see potential there, but they're not in the right situation. So they're not considered stars, right? Whereas now guys like Wes Welker and Julian Edelman, people see them as stars because of Tom Brady. And that's the effect of Russell Wilson to me. Yeah, for me, the MVP, at least at this point, was kind of like a two-man race between Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson. I think what put it over the edge for me for Russell is what you brought up about the defense. The Packers, in my opinion, have a top defensive unit in the NFL with how they're playing collectively. Yes, Aaron Rodgers has been without Devontae Adams, but I also think you look at the schedule at this point in the season, they've had an easier go right than Seattle. Right When you look at the Packers' standpoint, it just it hasn't been as hard as the route that the CS have gone through. You played the Vikings, you played the Lions. These are two teams that you've historically dominated ever since you've had Aaron Rodgers. You beat the Saints, who were a team that I think a lot of people are more down on, especially after week two of the season than you were going into the season. And then you have the Falcons who, let's be honest, they're they're not beating anybody. These are a few other stats that Russell Wilson is leading in that I think are really, really important. So obviously you mentioned the touchdown, 16, Tyce Peyton Manning's record for the most through four weeks. He also leads the NFL in passer rating. But these two stats were really impressive to me. Not only does he lead the NFL in completion percentage, but he also leads the NFL in yards per pass attempt. So a lot of people talk about Drew Brees and say, oh, well, Drew Brees leads the league in completion percentage every year. Well, yeah, but he also normally has the lowest yards per attempt, right, for one of the starting quarterbacks. So Russell Wilson, he's leading the league in completion percentage, but he also is throwing the ball downfield more than any other quarterback in the NFL. That's a great stat. I love that. Like, that's so impressive. He also is number one in touchdown percentage per pass. So 11% of his passes actually turn into touchdowns. And so we see guys like Dak, right, who's throwing the ball 51 times a game, put up these really impressive numbers where Russell Wilson, to a degree, yeah, they're airing the ball out more, but they still are a very balanced offense, giving the ball to Chris Carson. Pete Carroll loves running the rock. And so all of these numbers he's doing, they're not inflated by this modern NFL. He's just purely right now playing the quarterback position better than anybody in the NFL, and it's not close. Yeah, well, and let's also not forget that their offensive line is not elite. His ability to not only be mobile within the pocket, but to get outside of the pocket and make plays with his legs when needed and not take the big hit is huge. And also, they've essentially had a running back by committee. Chris Carson, and look, let me just say this real quick. As a Dallas Cowboys fan, what happened to Chris Carson is is unacceptable. You, you don't you don't twist a guy's leg like that when he's going down. It's just, it's just not acceptable. But again, going back to that, it's like, Chris Carson's been hurt the last couple of years and I like him as a player, but it's, it's not like he doesn't have beast mode. He doesn't have Marshawn Lynch. There hasn't been this like steady go of, of running backs. It's just been this kind of by committee. Right. So, so we're going to now move to the offensive player of the year. And for me, I'm just going to keep it short because it's also Russell Wilson. And the only reason why I'm choosing him for offensive player of the year as well. And this is where I think the NBA needs to also have an offensive player of the year rather than just an MVP, because I think in the NBA, to your point, like you've said several times, in the NBA, it's a lot about the storyline. And in the NFL, I do believe on some level it is, but it's essentially just the quarterback award, right? Whoever whoever is the best quarterback is probably going to win the MVP or puts up the most stats. But the offensive player of the year, to me, the MVP should be about who's the most valuable. The offensive player award should be who's putting up the best stats, right? And so when I look at Russell Wilson, he's on a record he's on a record pace right now with 16 TDs through four weeks, tying Peyton Manning's record. Like there's he's he's on pace to throw for 50 TDs. It's like if he does that and he throws five interceptions and they win 12, 13 games, I just don't I don't see how you don't give him that award as well. Yeah, the main reason I don't have him winning it is just because I think he wins MVP. And so in my mind, I think if he wins MVP he probably doesn't get offensive player. So for me, for offensive player of the year, as of right now, I have Alvin Kamara running back for the Saints. And the main reason I have him is his dual threat ability is kind of what's separating him right now. So as of right now, four weeks into the season, he's averaging 140 yards per game and about a touchdown and a half. But he's actually averaging more receiving yards than rushing yards through four games. So he's actually like a top 
five receiver in the NFL. If you just went off his receiving numbers in the NFL right now, he'd be top 10 in receiving yards and number one in touchdowns. And he's your running back. So he's currently on pace for just under a thousand rushing yards and almost 1,300 receiving yards and 28 total touchdowns. Now, obviously, he's not going to have 28, to- 28 total touchdowns, but he has seven through four games, and he's really been so much more explosive and really the Alvin Kamara we saw two years ago. Last year, there was reports that came out that he basically played half the season with a torn meniscus, I believe, right? And so he was battling injuries almost all of the second half of the season. A lot of people thought, like, what happened to this guy? He's He wasn't this X factor. I realize... They haven't had Michael Thomas since, I think, week two. But I actually think Alvin Kamara probably plays just as good, if not better, when Thomas comes back because now all of the offensive look isn't on you. Yeah, I think he's a guy that's benefited from Michael Thomas not being in the in the lineup because he's essentially been their only offensive weapon at this point. So the fact that he's had that much of a role in the passing game shows that. it's He's been a huge security blanket for Drew Brees with Michael Thomas not being in the lineup. So... You know, you just got to tip your hat to him for for taking advantage of the opportunity that he's been given. So we're going to move on to the defensive player of the year. I think this one's pretty pretty simple. It's cut and dry. It's Miles Garrett. And the reason why it's Miles Garrett is because he's tied for first in the league in sacks with five. He has three forced fumbles, which is also tied for first. And the the thing that I want to point out is that they'll switch him up and he'll rush from both sides, which is which is pretty rare for a defensive end. He's a guy that physically, if you just look at him, you're like, that guy looks like an NFL defensive end. Or if I'm going to make one in a lab, it's Miles Garrett. He's just such a force. And I, I don't, on a, on a defense that with the Cleveland Browns, it's not elite by any stretch of the imagination. He's He's been an absolute bright spot for them. So it, it, to me, this is an easy one. Agreement from me. I think he's a guy who we've been waiting for the production to consistently be there. I think last year and even the last few years, he's wowed us that time, but consistently we haven't seen that number where it looks like this is the first time in his career where he maybe gets to that 20 sack mark. But to your point, he leads the NFL in sacks, forced fumbles, and fumble recoveries. There's nothing else you can ask for from your defensive end. In our opinion, the most important position on the defensive side of the football. And so... um yeah, I, I think that one's pretty easy at this point. Offensive Rookie of the Year, for me, was the hardest to pick, I think, out of any of the awards. I went with Justin Herbert. It was really close between him and Burrow. Obviously, Burrow's had one additional start um, in, in Week 1, which is kind of a bummer because the Chargers were playing the Bengals. So it would have kind of been fun to see them duel. You feel like Justin Herbert probably would have played a little bit better just because Cincinnati's defense has been so abysmal. But from an offensive standpoint, I feel like both of them have a number of weapons when you look at A.J. Green, Keenan Allen, Tyler Boyd, um, Eckler for, for San Diego. But Justin Herbert, part of the reason he's Rookie of the Year for me is I knew or I believed what I thought Joe Burrow was going to do in his rookie season. I felt like he was ready day one to be an NFL starting quarterback. Justin Herbert has impressed me every single start. I mean, through three games, he's thrown for 931 yards, five touchdowns. For a guy who had completion question marks and accuracy question marks in college, he's completed 72% of his passes, and his passer rating is at 102.2% through three weeks as a rookie quarterback. But there's a stat that you shared with me pre-show that – I think is really telling in regards to how well Herbert is playing. So Herbert became the second player since 1970, the merger, right? To have 815 passing yards and a hundred plus passer rating in each of his first three career games, joining the great Patrick Mahomes, right? The people, the guy that everybody's claiming is the best quarterback in football. Another really interesting stat that you shared with me is for deep ball completions, right? It's one of the things we look at when we're grading quarterbacks. How can you pass the ball downfield, right? Not being a game manager, but really making those big plays. On passing plays of 20-plus yards, Herbert is 4 for 10, which is well above the NFL average, and he's passed for 164 yards and three touchdowns. And so he's doing it from every level of the field. I think he's completely changed the Chargers offense since the moment he took over. And that's why I have him narrowly beating out Joe Burrow for rookie of the year. 
Yeah, you're right. This one was really tough because both these guys are playing at a really high level right now. And the, the only reason I gave the edge to Burrow is because of the, the supporting cast. Um, defensively, they're absolutely atrocious. Their offensive line is abysmal. Now, again, to the defense of what we've made of the Bengals, they're not depleted of weapons, right? T. Higgins has looked pretty good. Their second-round pick out of Clemson, their wide receiver. And then you still have Tyler Boyd. You still have Joe Mixon. So he, it's not like he's playing with absolute scrubs out there. And then when you look at Joe Burrow's stats, right, he's he's thrown for 1,121 yards, which is 10th in the league right now. Six TDs, tied for 16th. He's only thrown two interceptions, which is tied for 8th best. And his QBR is suspect, so it's at 53.4, which is 24th in the league. But he's still completing 65.5% of his passes. And the thing is, for me, with Burrow is – Against all odds, you and I actually thought they would be better than what a lot of experts predicted. We thought they'd maybe win four to five games, and they actually should be three and one right now. That's just they should have won week one against the Chargers, like you pointed out. And then they should have they allowed Philly back in it and they tied that game, which I, I hate even saying that there are ties in football. But they easily should be three and one right now. And a lot of people would be looking that at that as an unbelievable start to a season when a lot of people thought the Bengals would win two to three games. So I just, I think when you look at it from that standpoint, again, this was so close for me because I think Herbert, the way that he's been thrust into action, many people thought, Oh, maybe it was best for him to be given notice of his start last minute. And it didn't give defenses a time to game plan against him. And then he gets starts two weeks in a row and he's looked good since his first start. It's not like he was just good because he was thrust into action. He's been good every week. And if you look at, I sent you a clip of a couple throws he made, just the way he's been able to throw dimes, falling off the back foot, it shows his arm strength. It shows his arm talent. And he's going to get those mechanics tightened up over the course of his career. And then just as he develops and learns the position and how to play it and read defenses, this guy could be super special. Moving on to the defensive rookie of the year. I think, again, this is another, another easy one. Just simply because I believe with this award, it's always going to go to a pass rusher, right? Just like the MVP is always pretty much going to go to a quarterback, unless you're Adrian Peterson and he rushed for 2,000 yards. But it's Chase Young. He's had two and a half sacks. He missed half of week three, missed all of week four, and he's still at two and a half sacks, which is tied for 19th in the league. And he also has one forced fumble, which is tied for first. And so I think he'll end up the year with double digit sacks, and he's he's made an immediate impact, just like. Nick Bosa did last year for the Niners. Yeah, I totally agree. You look at this Washington Redskins front seven, I think they alternate like six guys on the defensive line. Oh, my apologies, the Washington football team. Um, you look at their their front seven, um, especially that front four, they have so many bodies. Ryan Kerrigan's been there for, what, 10 years now that they alternate in, and so they're always healthy. They always have a lot of energy, and to your point, I think Chase Young, he was an interesting prospect for me. I thought he was going to be good, but... I wasn't sure if his ceiling was as high as, say, like a Nick Bosa, where when I was watching him at Ohio State, he was a great pass rusher, but it seemed like he took plays off when it was obvious running situations, and I wasn't sure what I was going to get from him consistently, but he's looked like he's met the eye test. Obviously, he's only played about two and a half weeks in the season, but he's still on pace for over 10 sacks. He also has a forced fumble. He's really wrecking havoc and helping that defensive unit, and so I totally agree with you um, for Defensive Rookie of the Year. The next one I want to talk about was Comeback Player of the Year. I feel like everybody's saying it's Big Ben. Obviously, he missed almost all of last season. He has the Steelers in playoff contention. Good chance they're going to win the division with kind of some of the struggles we've seen from Baltimore. Although, it looks like I was probably going to be wrong on Cleveland, and they're making a really good case four weeks into the season. But Cam Newton, and it's not because he's on my beloved New England Patriots, but it's because of what he's doing on the football field. So I was looking at some interesting stats on Cam Newton, and obviously we've always considered Cam to be a great runner of the football, a great athlete. And besides week one where I felt like New England really held back what they were doing because they were playing Miami, it was a divisional game, week one, short offseason trying to figure out what Cam does well, he's passed the ball really well, but he also has more rushing yards this season per game than he has at any point of his career. So he's still playing at an and elite level. And it's sneaky. Level. Yeah, it's like super sneaky too because if you actually watch the games, it's not. It's very different from what he was doing in Carolina. No, 100%. Like I was watching a run I think two weeks ago where 
I think I was watching on NFL Network and they were breaking down the play and he slid up in the pocket three separate times going through all of his progressions and then he took off for 25 yards because he's a great athlete. He's also completing 68% of his passes, which is the highest of his career. Cam Newton's always been this guy that takes big shots down the field, but he's been kind of like a 60% completion passer, right? He's That's been the biggest question mark on Cam is we love the arm talent. We love... The stature, what, 6'5", 6'6", 250, looks like a tank, can take off and run like a gazelle, but the completion percentage has been like, hey, can you make that routine throw on third and five? And to this point of the season, he's been really consistent. I think the only thing that can maybe hold him back is COVID, but it looks like their game this week is getting pushed back a day, so we'll be playing <laughs> again on Sunday. Yeah, I also have Cam Newton, and and I think to to our argument and to strengthen it, a, a lot of people are already saying he deserves an extension, like pay this man right now, and and I think he's deserved it. Uh, he's been somebody that I've been very impressed with. You know, we we talked about when the the transaction went down and you guys acquired Cam Newton. I said if he's actually healthy, I think this guy could be your franchise quarterback for the next five to seven years, and. Do I, do I know for sure that that's going to happen? No, but I think we're seeing that come to fruition on some level. And if he definitely gets an extension, let's say it's a three or four year extension, then it's going to be pretty close to what I predicted. You know, and it was tough. I I really like Ben Roethlisberger. I like what Pittsburgh's doing. You and I both picked them to win the AFC North. I think a lot of people might've thought that was crazy, but they've looked really good. Their defense has been arguably the best in the league so far through four weeks. And, but when I look at Cam, He's somebody I think the point you made was was absolutely perfect. The thing with Cam is that physically everybody knew the talent that he possessed, right? I mean, he literally 6'5, 6'6, 250. He's a linebacker. I mean, or a defensive end for that, for that matter. And when I look at what he's done playing the quarterback position, you and I talk about this all the time. There's been a lot of guys that are talented, but some of them have not been able to develop and translate onto the field as a quarterback. And learn the position, learn how to read defenses, be methodical through the position. And Cam's looked really good this year. He's run when he's needed to, not always just design runs. There have been a few of those, especially down at the goal line. But who's going to stop 6'5", 6'6", 250? So I don't blame Josh McDaniels for running those goal line QB runs, except for Seattle. I thought they, they should have run play action there, but that's that's a whole different conversation. Um but he's just looked absolutely amazing. The throws he's made, the accuracy, like I said, a lot of people overlooked that. It's like third and five. Like, can you make that throw? Can you make the quick slant? Can you make the quick out throw? We saw Nick Foles last night. Somebody had posted a picture. It was or it was in the first quarter, so people forget about it. But Allen Robinson was wide open. Uh, or sorry, I think it was it was Montgomery out of the flat or in the flat. And it, I mean, it literally would have been a first down. It was like third and five. And he overthrows him. It was just like it literally just just lobbed the ball up, and you you have a first down. But I think that's what's impressed me is he's he's made very timely throws. He's made elite throws, and uh, I think you got to give him the nod for for comeback player of the year. So the last award is the coach of the year, and mine might surprise some people. And Dustin, you might be excited about my pick, but I'm going to go with Bill Belichick. And even though it's not a surprise to many in terms of Bill Belichick being an elite coach, because many think that he is the greatest head coach of all time in the game of football. And actually some people think he's the greatest coach in all of sports and all of all time. The reason I'm picking him is not just because of what they're getting out of Cam Newton and the position they're putting him in to succeed. But here's the thing that's so impressive to me. Eight players opted out due to COVID and two of those eight were Dante Hightower, basically their quarterback on defense and Patrick Chung, is their starting safety. And by no means am I saying Patrick Chung's elite, but in that defense, he's been a staple for five to 10 years. Okay. The way that you guys neutralized Kansas city, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, you made Patrick Mahomes look above average. He did not look the eye test. I don't care about what the stats say, the eye test. If you have Cam Newton that game, you probably win. And that means you're- I was so happy Cam didn't play just because- Now they don't have any film on Cam, and offensively, I mean, defensively, the Chiefs know how New England's going to play them. Bill always has two high safeties, and the one part we've talked about with Mahomes as far as being a a not a franchise quarterback, but like 
being a top quarterback, like a Russell Wilson type quarterback, is he really struggles when he has to move the ball down the field on 10, 12 play drives because he just loves taking that deep shot. And we saw against New England, there was three or four times where they had interceptions in their hands and they dropped it because Patrick had to force the deep ball. And Bill's going to play two safety high and make you you know, five-yard play, five-yard play, seven-yard play, you're not going to get the big chunk plays. And so to see New England's defense play that well against Kansas City and go through two quarterbacks, right, a pick six, um, a sack before halftime where you don't get a field goal, you would have been tied with Kansas City, to your point. It was a really impressive – it's probably one of their best losses in the past three to five years. Yeah, like you're two and two, and your two losses are to 4-0 Seattle and to 4-0 Kansas City. Like, I'm good with that. No, 100%. New England's a team where everyone says if you're going to beat them, it's going to be September, early October, because come November and December, they're going to be in their role. Um, so, no, I love that. I, I feel like in spite, people might not pick Belichick because at least to the media standpoint, he's uh, he's on to Cincinnati. But, um, no, I think what he's overcome has been really impressive. For me, Coach of the Year – it's really interesting because I don't think anyone's had more of a 360 from the draft to this point in the season like Matt LaFleur, right? So after the NFL draft, everyone's saying, everyone's saying, this guy's an idiot. You drafted Jordan Love. How dare you be disrespectful to Aaron Rodgers? And I've listened to a number of people talk about this and say, well, maybe they took Jordan Love um, at a, as a motivation standpoint to Aaron Rodgers, I don't care about the Jordan Love pick. All I know is Matt LaFleur, through a season and a quarter, is 17-3 and in the regular season. They're 4-0 this year. They've scored 30 points a game. I don't want to hear, well, you have Aaron Rodgers, because so did Mike McCarthy, and he would 8-8 eight and eight his Very first good point. year. And part of the reason... I wasn't super high on McCarthy going to the Cowboys is what he did from the head coaching position was predicated just on Aaron Rodgers' arm talent and his ability to ad lib at the quarterback position. And what I've loved about Matt LaFleur is, yes, he's utilized what Aaron Rodgers does because it's easy to because Aaron Rodgers is so exceptional at every aspect of the quarterback position from the way he sees the game to his mobility at age what 37 38 now his arm strength his ability to look off a defender I mean he throws no look passes just like Patrick Mahomes it just isn't on YouTube and Sports Center to the same degree but you have a generational quarterback standpoint but Matt LaFleur has consistently said, we're going to be a football team that isn't going to just rely on Aaron Rodgers. Kind of like New England with Bill Belichick. Like Brady's been consistent, but they've also had a consistent running game. They valued their defense and their front seven and getting a pass rushing duo to put pressure on the other team. And so what Matt LaFleur's done from a CEO level and really saying, I'm going to take what Aaron does well, to make us a Super Bowl caliber team, but I'm also going to say, hey, this is my team and I'm going to put in what I think needs to be important to be successful from a young coach, a first-year coach, a guy with no head coaching experience who pretty much just got hired based upon the success of Sean McVay. I think he's done an absolutely amazing job. And if they continue at this pace and go, say, 12-4, and four, which it seems pretty likely with how the division's played. Minnesota's had a down year. You look at the Lions. At some point, you think the Bears aren't going to continue to sneak out these close wins. I think he has a great chance to, to not only be coach of the year, but have the Packers in a place to possibly make a run at a Super Bowl this year. Yeah, I think everything you said is as well as you could have laid it out. The one thing I would even add to that is LaFleur's done a great job of basically playing without Devontae Adams and playing with a bunch of guys that nobody knows. You know, I, I saw some stat that the majority of their offensive weapons are like fourth round picks and on to even undrafted guys. So the fact that he's been able to in year two with Aaron Rodgers. Now, again, you have Aaron Rodgers, so it's not like – it's not like you have scrubs at the skill positions and then you have a scrub under center. You have one of the all-time great talents, um, but you still have to put together game plans and, and put those guys in positions to be successful. And they've done a great job of that. So that's going to wrap things up for episode 44 of the DNC podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, share it with your family. We so appreciate the support. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DNC Podcast, and we will see you guys Monday.